Thank you, worship team. Sean and Kim already have treated me to the, the bagels in this part of the country, so I ticked that box, and that was, that was certainly a great experience. Also, some New York pizza. I did spend a few years in Chicago, so I wondered about the pizza on the East Coast, but it certainly passed the test. It was very good. Uh, so enjoying the delicacies here. I did ask Sean and Kim if there's a place for haggis pizza, and a little hard to find here, so a bit disappointed, but maybe next time. Uh, if you don't know the Scottish national dish, haggis is cooked in a sheep's stomach. For some reason, it seems to put some people off the menu. I have no reason why to understand that. But, <laughs> amen. <laughs> well, I said a little bit about what my passion is. My passion is, is building bridges to have conversations that count, to really talk about things that really matter. And that's not, it's not easy to do in a culture that can often shut down serious conversations. It can be a place people don't want to go. Maybe they don't feel comfortable. But those are the kinds of conversations uh, that we want to have with people. And I'm so thankful that God uses people to reach out and to share this message. Uh, I, I was born um, in Scotland. Anyone here been to the Promised Land? Scotland. Scotland, yeah, but uh, I was raised in Edinburgh, Scotland, in the capital city, and so I was raised there, and I was born into a family that wasn't Christian family, and wasn't interested in Christian things, uh, and my mum and dad's marriage was a bit rocky, uh, my mum was um, quite a feisty woman, she was five foot two, little Scotswoman, but she had a bit of a temper. Growing up, she would jump into fights to beat up people that were beating up her big brothers. So she had a bit of a temper, and she started getting involved in Taekwondo, and she was approaching her black belt. We had pictures of her breaking wood in our house to uh, put the fear into people who came to visit, perhaps, or maybe put the fear into my dad. But uh, it was a rocky marriage. By the time I was three years old, my parents were divorced. And so my sister and I went to live with my mom, and my dad would come and visit us on the weekends, normally after the bars were closed. And that's kind of what I thought life was going to be like. We moved into a neighborhood that was quite a rough part of town, a lot of broken families, and so this was kind of our situation, and it didn't look good. But a neighbor invited my mom to church. Now, I think in our mind, if you're a Christian here this morning, there'll be people you would have almost like a, a list in your mind of people that you might like to invite to church. But then there'll be another list of people that you think, well, that's a waste of time. They would never go to church. My mom was on that list. So let me encourage you not to dismiss or rule out people on the outside because we don't know what God is doing on the inside. My mom went to church and she heard this message while growing up in Scotland she'd never heard before that there was a God who existed and that this God cared for the world and cared for her and was reaching out to her because had created her for a purpose, had created her for a relationship with God so that the creator and the created could be in harmony and relationship and that God wanted this for my mom. But there was this barrier because my mom knew that she was broken. She knew she'd made mistakes. She knew that she had made many bad choices in her life. And then she heard this wonderful story that God loved her anyway. God loved her inner brokenness. And that if she was willing to come to God and accept what God had done for her, and that was that he sent his son into this world to pay for everything 
that should separate her from a holy God. That price had been paid, not by her, but by God himself when he sent his son, that all that was left now was for my mom to humble herself and to uh, really say sorry to God and hand her life over to him, knowing at that point God was willing to welcome her back into his family. It sounded too good to be true, but the next Sunday my mom went back to church and she went forward and she committed her life to Christ. And as a consequence of that, she started to look different. And people who knew her before would look at her and say, what, what happened to you? No one more than my dad who said, what happened to the woman I was married to for six years? And he was intrigued. He was uh, captivated enough to start attending the same church. And over a, a period of time, my dad was drawn closer to Christ until my dad made a commitment to follow Jesus. And when he made that commitment, the whole dynamic of the family shifted and changed. Uh, my parents were getting on better. It was a much better situation until my mom and dad took my sister and I aside and said, listen, we want to share with you some news. We're, we're getting remarried to each other. So when I was nine, I went to my mom and dad's wedding. I got to see my mom and dad back together. I'm in the wedding album. They have two wedding albums, one from the 60s, which is the black and white version. Then they have the color one from the 70s. But as a little boy, I saw this is no dry and dusty religion. And in Scotland, that's easy to come to that conclusion. But this is real. This is a relationship with God that really changes people, that really changes people's lives for the better. So as a nine-year-old boy, that's when I made a commitment to Christ. And so this was a, a kind of an important part of my life. And I was so thankful for what God had done in my family. And that was a big part of what I wanted to share with people. But as I got into my teenage years, I realized, you know, there's a lot of broken families out there, and, and not every family gets back together. In fact, even Christian families can fall apart. So as a teenager, I started to wrestle with some difficult questions because I thought, well, is Christianity for you if it works for you? And if it doesn't seem to work for you, then should you go looking for something else? And so I had some difficult questions that I was really wrestling with as a teenager, but I did the wrong thing. I did not pursue and ask those questions. I parked them. I shelved them. And I said, you know, I'm going to live my life for a while, and I'll get back to you later, God, with some of these questions. And I started a slow drift away from God. And I knew better but I drifted away from God. And after a few years, um, my sister actually became very ill and she nearly died. Uh, and that was a moment that God used again really to, to get my attention. And I'm so thankful that God uh, allowed my sister to recover and she did recover. But that was a moment really a, a game changer for me when I came back to the Lord and I was all in and I was ready to give everything to him. And I was so thankful for this opportunity to, to live for him and to serve him. And so uh, that was a, a big moment in my life. And I was so thankful. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son, where this boy who knew better goes away, and he only returns to his father when there's nowhere else to go. And so in our mind, you think, yeah, well, I know what the father's going to say. He's not going to accept him on those terms. He's going to tell us somewhere to go. That's not what happens. The father welcomes him back with open arms. And I experienced that. I was so thankful for God's grace and goodness as a result of that. There's a little 
uh, phrase. It's from the writing of G.K. Chesterton, but I think it captures so eloquently how God works with broken people in a broken world. Chesterton used this, this phrasing that I just so related to. He said this, I caught him with an unseen hook and an invisible line long enough to let him wander to the ends of the earth and still bring him back with a twitch upon the thread. And I experienced that opportunity where God was willing to welcome me back. And this time was different. This time I realized how to build a strong foundation for my faith. I like how Christian author Oz Guinness put it, Christianity is not true because it works. It works because it's true. Christianity is not true because it works. It works because it's true. And it's very important to get that the right way around. We live in a culture that's built around convenience and pragmatism. Just find what seems to work for you. Well, the trouble is we don't always really know what is working for us or what is good for us, particularly in the long term, particularly from an eternal perspective. And so that's a difficult way the culture's going about trying to find something to build their life on. Well, I realized we need to build our life on the truth and the one who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life, and that is building our life on Jesus Christ. So that's been my passion uh, throughout the, the years of ministry that I've had is really uh, sharing uh, and shining about the truth of the gospel, that this stuff fits, this stuff makes sense, this stuff brings us hope into the world. But maybe you've noticed when you start to stand up and speak out about Christianity, it can trigger some resistance. Some people don't like it. And in the culture we live in, the culture can be very resistant to it as well. It can be a difficult thing to do. And it seems like there's an, an unwritten rule in our society. It seems like there's a new commandment. And that is when it comes to religion, particularly Christianity, thou shalt keep thy beliefs to thyself. When it comes to religion, particularly Christianity, thou shalt keep thy beliefs to thyself. It seems like this new commandment is part of the, the culture that we live in. Well, there's a problem with that statement. I've already mentioned G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors. And he would use this kind of description, this kind of illustration to underline the problem with that statement. Because that statement is like sawing off the branch you're sitting on. If you make that statement, it's like sawing off the branch you're sitting on. And you can imagine the consequences of, of doing that. I was teaching on this subject before. I actually found on YouTube a group of teenagers that put this to the test. They actually did saw off the branch they were sitting on. And uh, yeah, no surprises how that, how that one ended. But this, this idea, again, uh, about people making this statement, well, the problem of this statement is that it is a self-contradiction. If someone ever says to you, you know, when it comes to religion, we need to keep our beliefs to ourselves. The person who utters these words is not keeping their belief to themselves about religion. This person has just done what they said we should not do. This person has just shared their belief about religion with other people. But here's the genius of it. In sharing their belief about religion, they then shut down anybody else from speaking who dare disagree with them. See the power in that? It's so subtle. 
See, it can be used to manipulate and to close conversations with other people, which is why it's so popular. So if, if you ever hear someone say, you know, well, when it comes to religion, we really, we really should keep our beliefs to ourselves. We need to come alongside someone and gently help them understand that in saying that, this person just did not keep their belief to themselves. They just shared their belief about religion. They just did what they said we shouldn't do. And we can support them sharing their belief because we're supportive of a more open, tolerant society where they can share their view. But it means that we retain the right to do so too. So it's helping clear up some of the confusion in our culture. And there's a lot of confusion in the culture that we live in today. And many people try to shut down Christians, tell them to sit down and stop speaking this kind of opposition. Well, this opposition is not unique to the century we live in. You go right back into the first century. You go back throughout Scripture, and you can see resistance to those who wanted to speak God's Word, who wanted to speak truth. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to turn to a, a very well-known, familiar um, passage in First Peter. First Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read from verses uh, 13 to uh, 16. I'm reading from the ESV here. 1 Peter chapter 3, reading from verse 13. Peter says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter's first letter, uh, likely written from the city of Rome, uh, early 60s. This is toward the end of Peter's life. Uh, again, church tradition would hold he was martyred there uh, shortly after the Apostle Paul killed for his faith. And he's writing to Christians at this time uh, who are feeling the pressure, who are tempted to feel the fear, the opposition, the hostility, even persecution from people who live in a culture who are looking at these Christians and they don't like it. They don't like what they say. They don't like what they do. They don't like what they don't do. And so this kind of hostility and opposition is rising up. And Peter wants to write to them to encourage them. He wants to write to them and say, listen, don't fear. When someone says don't fear, when the Bible says don't fear, they address that issue because they know in those circumstances, in that context, fear is something that starts to rise up within us. But we're not stuck. We don't just have to give in. We don't throw in uh, the, white, the, the towel, throw in the, raise the white flag. We have a response. We have something that we can do. We have someone that we can look to. And so uh, Peter wants to encourage people. And in the culture that we live in today, increasingly there's hostility. Increasingly there's opposition. If you want to stand up and speak the truth, it's not going to be easy. And there's going to be a temptation to feel afraid and to sit down and to be silent. Well, Peter's words hopefully will be an encouragement to us today to overcome that obstacle to standing up and speaking out because God wants to help us to shine brightly in the face of opposition. 
I enjoy working with uh, all different ages and stages, but often students and young people are really wrestling with some of life's difficult questions. And so I love the fact that God's Word, it just hits the target. It's a bullseye when it comes to some of life's big questions, and it helps us make sense of the world. It helps us make sense of others. It helps us make sense of ourselves. And as a, a, a kind of a, a teaching tool that I often use is the ordinary jigsaw puzzle. great thing about a jigsaw puzzle is that I can talk about a jigsaw puzzle in all parts of the world, and people know what it is. They know how it works. It's very simple, but it actually helps match up with the way that we interact with the world and interact with many questions. And if life is like a jigsaw puzzle, well, certainly it's broken. Certainly it's in a mess. Certainly it's confusing because this is the biggest puzzle of them all. And we're surrounded by all these pieces. But here's the problem. When we look at life, the one thing we do know is we're never going to find all the answers. Life is confusing. It is puzzling. Many things we don't know. Many things we will never know. But we know this. We're never going to find all the answers. And if we're never going to find all the answers, some people conclude, what's the point asking the questions? Isn't that like being... Uh, given an assignment to write an essay, write a paper. How many pages? Just keep writing. How many pages? Just keep writing. Well, I'm not even going to start writing that essay if I'm never going to complete it. We're never going to find all the answers. So some people stop asking the big questions. So the jigsaw puzzle is so helpful for us, and I'll talk a little bit more about this this afternoon, is that there's something so simple and beautiful about a jigsaw puzzle there's something that is so powerful, and it is this. When it comes to a jigsaw puzzle, if you want to see the big picture, you don't need every single piece of a puzzle in place to see the big picture. You can be dealing with the biggest puzzle of the world, and if you want to see the big picture, you don't need every single piece in place. All you need is enough of the really important parts that stand out and snap into place. If you can find those, you can stand back with confidence. You know, God wants you to look at life and see the big picture. God has revealed enough in this world, in his word, that you can help identify things that stand out, snap into place, to stand back with confidence and say, I can see the big picture. People can say to me, Alec, you look at life, you've got pieces missing. I've got no problem admitting I've got pieces missing. Alec, you've got some parts they don't seem to fit. I've got some parts I don't know how they fit but I fall back on the things that stand out and snap into place, and I have confidence I can see the big picture. Someone that you know that doesn't know Christ, can you imagine if they could look at life and they could see the big picture? That would change everything. Changes everything. And it's within reach because you don't need every piece of the puzzle to see the big picture. You don't need to know everything to know the truth. So suddenly, life's ultimate questions are within reach, and we can start picking out pieces of the puzzle. Young people today, they are hungry for ultimate answers. Young people are hungry for ultimate answers. But sometimes we can make the mistake of answering the wrong questions. If you're answering questions no one's asking, why would they be interested if you're answering questions people are not asking, why would they be interested? Christianity addresses key questions 
that mean everything to people, and young people are hungry for answers. Life's ultimate questions, they strike a chord, and we need to be prepared to use them to build bridges into those conversations. And three key ones that I focus on, and I use them in the gospel tract, and I'll be talking a lot about that this afternoon. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? These questions that seem out of reach, these ultimate questions are within reach when we understand you don't need to know everything to know the truth. And God has given us pieces of the puzzle that stand out and snap into place where we can address some of these key puzzle pieces. We can put them together and start to see the big picture. And that's exciting. That's exciting for us in such a confused world, such a confused culture. My middle daughter, Mariah, uh, she was in middle school in a public school close to where we lived not too long ago. And I found out that career day was coming up. And it kind of got my attention. I said, Mariah, I wonder if I can come in for career day. And she said, Dad, that would be awesome. So she was excited, and I got invited to go and talk about what I do. This is what I do. So I went into this eighth grade classroom in a public school with a class filled of unchurched, non-Christian young people. And I was going in there to talk about what I do, which is talking about how a Christian worldview helps us make sense of the world, helps us make sense of others, helps us make sense of ourselves. Now, I don't know if that would get you out of bed in the morning, but I loved it. And I don't know what kind of reaction that we would expect, maybe apathy or opposition. Can I tell you, these young people were gripped. They were gripped by what I was talking about because it struck a chord with them. It dug deep into some of those deep searching questions that young people have, and they look at this world, and it doesn't make sense. And the answers that they have in this world are difficult to digest. And I had some things to share and to say with them that were encouraging for them, very encouraging for them. I got to say to them, you know what? There's a particular way of looking at the world that if there is no God, what are you? You're just a byproduct of a cosmic accident. You're an insignificant speck. I used to go into Scottish schools. I love doing this in Scottish schools. I would say, listen, who knows, but if um, what you're learning in the classrooms here is true, you're just some kind of bacteria that's managed to survive by eradicating everything that stands in its way. What you are is just a grown-up germ. I said this in schools. I was a chaplain in my local high school. But I said there's another way of looking at the world. There's a God who created this world. There's a God who created you. He made you in his image. And let me tell you, he stamped you with absolute value. God made you, and you're special. I got to share this in this eighth-grade grade classroom. Why are you here? Well, there's no real reason. Make your own reason. What if you can't find a reason? Maybe there is no reason. Relationships are so important to us, but look at this world. It's full of broken relationships. In fact, many people come to the conclusion pretty early on, the kind of relationship that I'm looking for, uh, the world doesn't have it. Hey, they're actually getting pretty close to the truth. This world does not have the relationship ultimately we're looking for because the relationship ultimately we're looking for is out of this world. 
And when you have that relationship with God, it filters into every other relationship that we have. God loves us. He made us in His image, yes, and He wants us to know Him. He wants us to be part of His family. What about the future? It's pretty bleak. People don't talk about it, but basically, every one of us, we can look forward to what? We can look forward to death. If there is no God, that's it. In fact, this whole universe is going to decay and die one day. All this will be forgotten. In the meantime, just try and distract yourself. It's like being on the Titanic. And let's rearrange the deck chairs. Let's make it look pretty. But this ship is going down. I said, you know what? Why is it that death is difficult? Even when someone that we love dies, we wish they could have lived longer. In fact, what would be the dream in movies and in science fiction? Imagine there was a way where you found a way to live forever. Where does an insignificant speck get such lofty ideals? The Bible says, you long for forever because you were created for eternity. That's why it's in your heart. I got to share this with these young people. Well, the teacher, I didn't know she was going to do this, but she got the students to fill out comment cards. And I read these when Mariah brought them home, and I was so moved by these young people because they connected with these truths. They connected with them. And they were so thankful for me going to share them. And my heart was excited, but also it was breaking for other students on that campus who didn't hear and who haven't heard, or campuses across the country, across the world, who don't know. We have these answers. The world doesn't know. And God wants us to share them with other people too. God's given us a message of hope. This world has no hope. You know what's amazing? He wants to use ordinary people to share it. Sean mentioned about the disciples. This would not be the list of people you would choose to start a worldwide movement. They would not be on the list. God chose ordinary people to share ultimate truth, which means everyone here today, all of us, God wants to use us to reach the people around us and to encourage us. Well, back to the text here again. I want to key on 1 Peter 3, verse 15. I love how the old NIV put it, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Peter says, as believers, you're going to face opposition. You're going to be tempted to be afraid, but do not fear, he says, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. In the life of every Christian, he says, it starts in the heart. It starts in the heart, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. It's been said many times, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The heart is where it starts. But there's a problem here. See, the Bible talks a lot about the heart, and the culture talks a lot about the heart, but they're not talking about the same thing. And that leads to a lot of confusion here. And sometimes the cultural understanding and definition can seep into the minds of people in the church. So when we hear this word heart, we need to be sure that we understand what the Bible is saying. I don't know how many movies we've watched as a family, particularly animated movies, 
I think Mulan 2 is one of the most blatant. But in these movies, the story unfolds and the main character gets to a pivotal point, a moment of decision-making. And this is really the crux of the movie. And the character is encouraged to make a decision and they're told what to do to make sure they make the right decision. And that is this. What do they do? They listen to their heart. How many songs, how many movies have you heard? Listen to your heart. That's how you'll know the right thing to do. What does that translate at as in the culture? Look inside and follow your feelings. Look inside and follow your feelings. We are witnessing a generation that has been raised with the remit to navigate life by looking inside and following their feelings. What's the consequence of that? Well, look at the culture. Chaos. Confusion. So why is it so important? Why is it so attractive to people? I mean, this listen to your heart as a philosophy. Why would people even be tempted to do it? Why would they be drawn into it? Let me give you a top five. Number five. If you live by following your feelings, number five, it doesn't take much effort. Wow, you want to get young people on board today? Teenagers, I've got two of them at home. <laughs> Doesn't take much effort. Attractive. Number four, live by following your feelings. Well, you get to do what you want. <laughs> this is getting good, right? You get excited about this. Number three, live by following your feelings. You get to do what you want and believe you're doing what's right. I mean, this sounds like the dream ticket. Number two, live by following your feelings. No one can criticize you. Because you didn't choose your feelings, your feelings chose you. I mean, this is fantastic, right? Isn't this amazing? Number one, live by following your feelings. Other people have to leave you alone. Because we all retreat into our own little bubble of our feelings. No wonder this is attractive. No wonder this draws people in. No wonder we see a culture saturated with this kind of thinking. But if you meet someone who starts to espouse this, we need to sober them up pretty quickly. I was talking to someone who was kind of talking along these lines, and I said, listen, you don't really believe that. You don't really believe. You just look inside and follow your feelings. You don't really believe that the human trafficker just needs to look inside and follow his feelings, taking advantage of and exploiting some of the most weak and vulnerable women in our society, even if it makes him happy. You don't believe that he's doing the right thing. Well, the guy started to backtrack because he didn't want to endorse human trafficking. He was a nice guy, but he'd been so confused and just sucked into this cultural mindset that he needed to be steered back into the right direction. He needed to have some clear thinking. And that's what we often have to do in our culture. We have to bring them back into reality. Well, the Bible talks a lot about the heart. And it doesn't mean just look inside and follow your feelings. Now, it includes our feelings. Our feelings are God-given. I'm not against feelings. Imagine life without feelings, emotions. And God uses these very often to communicate to us. Maybe you're praying about a difficult situation, you're weighing it up, and maybe God just brings peace to confirm a decision that you're weighing. Maybe you're starting to go in the wrong direction. Maybe you're straying in the wrong direction. And God brings his conviction upon you to get your attention, to steer you back in the right direction. 
But the point is, biblically, that you do not disconnect the mind. You do not isolate your feelings. If you do that, it's a recipe for disaster. When the Bible talks about heart, it means the very epicenter of a person. It means the core of who you are. It includes your mind. It includes your emotions. It includes your will. The way that God made made us as persons with personality. And when we love God with all our heart, it means with our mind, our emotions, our will, with everything. And when we sing about God, I give you my heart, it means we give him our mind, our emotions, our will, we give him everything. The culture has got a different view from what the Bible would have us believe about the heart. We need to help clear up some of the confusion. Peter says, if you start to feel fear in the culture, if you want to live for Jesus and you start to see this opposition and you start to fear, he says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Set apart Christ as Lord. Bob Dylan uh, wrote a song, Everybody's Serving Somebody. Everybody's Serving Somebody. For the Christian, they serve Christ alone. He is the one they look to. He's the one they look up to. And set apart, this word can be translated sanctify, to be holy. And Christ is the holy one. He's the one that we set apart. And what is amazing, that when you set apart Christ as Lord, he's not some distant, abstract object. He is a person. He's a person who comes and actually indwells you by his spirit. He lives inside you, and he brings this holiness that he has, and he brings it into your life, and he starts to sanctify you, and he starts to change you, and he starts to transform you so that your life on the outside starts to look different. This supernatural transformation as a result of the indwelling of Christ in the Christian. And Paul wrote in Galatians 5 about what that looks like. There's evidence in the life of a believer that they are spiritually alive. They start to experience and they start to demonstrate God's love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, his self-control. The fruit of the Spirit starts to develop in the life of a believer. Now, fruit can take time to grow, but we see this as evidence that someone is spiritually alive. And if you look at other religions, it seems like, hang on, Christianity got it the wrong way around. Christianity seems to be a bit confused because other religions, they have a common denominator, and that is there's a guidebook. There's some kind of set of rules and regulations, and you follow these as best you can. You try as hard as you can by following these rules and regulations. And if you do well, then maybe you follow them on the outside. You'll start to be the right kind of person on the inside. Christianity says there's nothing we can do on the outside to be the right kind of person on the inside. Which is why my mom, all those years ago, there was hope for her. Because Jesus' message to her was, he loves the unlovable. You come as you are. And God changes you on the inside. And then your life starts to look different on the outside. Other religions are outside in. Christianity is the only one that is inside out. Very different approach to seeing this change, this transformation. And that's why we have hope. That's why we have assurance. Christianity is not about what we can do for God. It's what God has done for us. Our only responsibility is to respond to what he has done, what he wants to do in us and through us. And that's the basis of our assurance. Christians never arrive at a point where they can pat themselves on the back 
We can only point to the goodness and the grace of God. But when people look at the life of a believer, it ought to be different. It ought to get their attention. There ought to be something where people look at the life of a believer and say, you know what, your life doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. I was speaking at a funeral of a wonderful godly lady, a missionary who uh, we'd known for many years, and she asked me to, to, to speak at her funeral because she was very ill, and that was a tough day, but what an honor for me to stand and to celebrate the life of this woman. And the message that day was, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts ought to be our testimony. That ought to be our legacy that someone looks at our life and says, you know what, it doesn't add up. Not without God. God helps us make sense of someone who lives for him. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Well, Christians are called to be different, but here's the hope. We're empowered to be different. Good luck if it's just rules and say, listen, try your hardest. Do your best. We are empowered to be different. God gives us that power, that capacity. G.K. Chesterton, again, I've quoted him a couple of times. He said, a dead thing can go with a stream. Only a living thing can go against it. Dead thing can go with a stream. Only a living thing can go against it. Christians are not chameleons. We don't just fit in. We don't just duck down. We don't just do whatever everyone else does for an easy, quiet life. We stand out from the crowd. We are counter-cultural. That's what gets people's attention. Chapter 1 of Peter's letter says this is possible uh, because the believer has been born again. We know that language, don't we, from the words of Jesus, John chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus. Born again. Not physically, but spiritually. We are born again. We're a new creation in Christ. But as Peter says, some people are not going to like it. They're not going to like it. First Peter 4, verses 3 and 4, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same food of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. It's not nice being abused and criticized for doing the right thing. That's hard to bear. It's worth asking, why do people care? I mean, sometimes I look at the world, look at the culture, and I think, you know what? If people can do what they want, why do they care what I think? I mean, they can do what they want. Why do they care? Why do they care so much that they don't allow me to disagree with them? I have to agree with them even when I disagree with them. I mean, that makes no sense to me until we look at the Bible and we can see why. It's not enough for us to be able to do what we want. There's something inside us that wants to do what's right. It's not enough to just do what we want. We want to feel like we're doing what's right. No one wants to live a lie. So what do we do? Do we find out what's true and do the right thing? No, we don't. We do what we want, and we have to find another way to be comfortable about it. Thomas Morris is a Christian writer. He said, if we want to believe a lie, we must convince others that it's true. We need comrades in delusion. It's the wrong way around, right? Live the truth. No, I want to do what I want to do so I can feel better about it if I can get other people to believe it too. We can see that in our culture, can't we? But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord, giving Jesus his rightful place 
as our master, the one we look up to, the one we hold on to, the one we can build our life upon. You're fearing the culture because there's opposition, there's persecution, there's hostility. Fear is a natural reaction, but we're not stuck. We don't have to fall into fear, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord and know the empowerment of God to shine in a culture that doesn't like what you say and what you do. That's the hope for us, to live with hope. And when you live with hope in a world that has no hope, Peter says, you better be ready for what comes next. People are going to want to know why. How can you live with hope that has no hope? Be prepared to share. Be prepared to give an answer. This word in the Greek is a Greek word apologia, from which we get the word apologetics, which has got nothing to do with apologizing for Christianity. This is confidently sharing what we believe and why we believe it in the context of this passage, sharing why we can have hope in a world that has no hope. And hope is so critical for people. God wants to use us to share with the people around us. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you find it difficult to share your faith, I want to let you know and to comfort you that most people find it difficult to share their faith. It's not like only me. Hey, we'd all be putting up our hands because it's not easy. No one wants to uh, have a negative reaction, to be rejected, to be shut down, or to be put in an awkward situation, maybe where we, we don't know the answers to difficult questions. All these kind of things can stop us from opening our mouth and sharing our faith. But please, one of the things I want to encourage you today is don't walk away from your responsibility because God wants to use ordinary people to share ultimate truth. God uses all kinds of people to reach all kinds of people. God uses all kinds of people to reach all kinds of people. And if you don't reach out, who's going to reach out to someone just like you? Be prepared to share. Be prepared. And apologetics is not having an answer for everything. Even the best apologist in the world, they've got questions they don't know the answer to. And this passage says, what is your responsibility? Be prepared to share the reason for the hope that you have. If you're a Christian here this morning, what is the reason why you have hope in this world? That's your homework for today. What is the reason why you have hope in this world? That's what Peter says, be prepared to share. The reason why you have hope. And there'd be many reasons, and they all count, and you can use them to reach out to people around you. Now, if you're starting to think, you know what, you don't know if you're up to the job because this sounds pretty difficult and you're starting to maybe question, let me encourage you with another passage from Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul, when he was in Athens at the Areopagus, delivered a spectacular message. And within this message, he says something very interesting. He says, God determines the times and places that we live, and he does so for a reason. This is from Acts 17, so that we would perhaps seek after him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Think of the implications of this. You could have been born anywhere, at any time in history, in any family, with any group of friends. God placed you strategically with salvation in mind. Which means the people around you, if you're a Christian, that were influential in you coming to Christ, it was no accident. God put people around you to reach out to you. And he handpicked those people to be the right people to reach you. Well, let's flip this around. If you're a Christian this morning, think of the non-Christians in your life. 
You've been handpicked by God and placed next to them. God wants to use you to reach the people around you. So if ever you have doubts or ever you're doubting, you know, whether or not you're up to the job, defer to God because God could have placed anyone next to these people, anyone in your family, anyone with your neighbors. God could have chosen Billy Graham, the great evangelist, to be in your family. God could have put Billy Graham next to your neighbor. He didn't choose Billy Graham. He chose you. You must be pretty special. God wants to use you to reach the people around you. And like the early disciples, ordinary people, God said, I want to use you to change the world. That's the opportunity that we have. That's a responsibility that we have. First Peter 1, 3, and 4, Praise be to the God and Father for Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Hope is powerful. Hope is powerful. It's so powerful that people struggle to live without it. Statistics show more than ever, young people are suffering from depression today. They are bombarded with medication. Suicide rates are shocking and alarming. Now, this is a complex issue. There are many factors that can feed into this, physiological and other things, but I'd like us to set those aside for one moment and just consider the implications of young people growing up and really just bombarded with a particular way of looking at the world. It tells them that they came from nowhere. They're here for no reason. They're going nowhere. Consider the implications of that worldview seeping into your mindset. What would be the consequences of that? Well, listen to this here, which is a famous quote from a famous atheist in the last century called Bertrand Russell. And he's spelling out the consequences of a godless perspective. Listen to this. That man is the product of causes which have no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his love and beliefs are but the outcomes of accidental collocations of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins, all these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only in the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. The honest consequences of a godless worldview. What do you build your life upon? The foundation of unyielding despair. You're an accident, here for no reason, you're going nowhere. Implications of this on the minds of many people. More recently, Richard Dawkins, well-known atheist, very popular in the culture. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Wow. Think of the terrible things that happen in the world today 
dance into my DNA. What a confused culture that we live in. Well, Christians look at the world very differently. And it makes a big difference. And it's a message of hope the world desperately needs to hear. We were specially created by God. We're valuable, absolutely valuable. The world didn't give this. The world can't take it away. We're here for a reason, for a purpose. There's meaning to life, and it's built around relationship, but the ultimate relationship that God created us for. And when you have that relationship, the creator and the created together in relationship, in harmony, it changes everything. And there's hope for the future because we know death is not the end. When we're with God in a relationship with him, we're going to be with him forever. And the great thing about this, that it's not just pie in the sky. It's not, you know what? Let's make up a story to try and deal with reality. It's so toxic, the reality. Let's take some little bit of sugar in the medicine to sweeten it up. I get excited about this because this fits. This resonates with the real world. This makes sense that this is the truth and it fits. The pieces fit together to help me see the big picture and to share this message with people around us as our opportunity as well as our responsibility. But don't forget, as Peter says, we need to do this with gentleness and respect. If Christian apologetics is ever arrogant, if it's elitist or disrespectful toward those who see the world differently, it's not Christian apologetics. Peter says, in fact, if you're going to exhibit some of these characteristics, rather than share your faith, you should keep your mouth closed. He says, you share these gently and respectfully, but you speak the truth with gentleness and respect. The world's broken, life's confusing. We're never going to find all the answers. But you don't need every piece of a puzzle to see the big picture. You don't need to know everything to know the truth. God uses all kinds of people to reach all kinds of people. God wants to use you to reach the people around you. God wants to use you to change the world. Let me just finish with this as I close. I was teaching a class, and uh, a lady, an older lady, came to the class. She was 90 years old. And Betty uh, was coming to the class, not a Christian, very excited to come. I was teaching it on the book that I have out there. And she said, you know what? I always kind of thought that I had to get all the answers before I made a commitment to something. I said, Betty, you could have lived another 90 years. You still wouldn't have found all the answers. So she found the jigsaw so helpful because suddenly the goal was within reach. And through the course of the class, I was speaking to her at the end of it, and she could start to see the big picture. I said, Betty, you know enough to see enough to know the truth. All that's left is for you to decide. Are you going to take a step of faith to trust in this, to trust in Jesus? And she did. And she was baptized a few months afterward. Ashley was 15 high schooler at a camp I was speaking at. I was there with Cheryl, and uh, the girls were with us as well. And so through the course of this camp with high schoolers, it was a great week. God was really moving and working, and we got to know Ashley. She was terrific. She wasn't a Christian. She had been invited there with a friend. And through the course of the week, we knew God was really working in our life. We were excited about what God was doing. And at the end of the week, she hadn't made a commitment. Oh, we were a little bit disappointed, but we committed to pray for her. 
we knew that God was working, and I spoke to the youth leader, and I said, listen, God's really working in Ashley's life. In fact, we're going to keep praying for her and trusting that God's going to draw her to himself. And I said, in fact, if you've got some good news to share, just send me a text, simple text, Ashley's in the kingdom. Well, we left the camp, we drove back home, uh, we got the kids back and got unpacked, went to bed. The next morning I got up, message on my phone, Ashley's in the kingdom. She'd had a conversation with the youth leader that went on along into the night and ended up making a commitment to Christ. Well, we were so excited. And I got to speak in her church a short time after that, so I got to see Ashley. Her eyes were shining. It was just terrific to see her. A year later, I got a different text. It wasn't one I was expecting. Last night, Ashley was killed in a car accident. 16 years old. Passenger in a car was killed instantly. The youth leader called me and he said, Alec, as far as you know, our family are not Christians, but they know that Ashley had a real faith. And they've asked if you would take the funeral. I'm thinking, I don't really do funerals. It's not my thing. It's not my thing. But you know what? I didn't hesitate. If I can honor her in this way, and what an opportunity. So on the day of the funeral, I was standing in the chapel. There was a mass of people outside. They opened the doors. People flooded in. So many young people, standing room only. And as they were filing in, I was thinking, I have got nothing to say to these people. But boy, have I got a message for them. I tell you, it was almost like turn on the hose. I was desperate to share a message of hope. This world has no hope. It's full of distractions, it's full of intoxications, anything to stop thinking about those questions that without God are hopeless. And I shared that day about Ashley's faith, her faith in Christ, so that we can be confident that she's alive today, as D.L. Moody said, more alive than ever. And also the hope that Ashley has and had is one that we can have. This world's in a mess. This world has no hope. It is confusing. And for most of us, we can think, you know what? What am I going to do? God, I'm an ordinary person. I've let God down. Well, God himself has shown us many, many times that he loves using ordinary people to share ultimate truth. God wants to use you to reach the people around you. You know what? If you say, I'm available and respond, he's going to use you in a way that's going to change the world. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the great example of Peter who wrote this letter, someone who often failed Jesus, let him down, who didn't have the right credentials, we would think in many ways, but who was available to you and who you empowered to live in a way that was different. You gave him words to speak. You gave him power and authority he did not have himself, but he had it in you. Lord, this is a room of people this morning. And Lord, we look at the culture, we look at the the difficulties, the challenges. We know the temptation to fear, to be afraid, to shut down, to just fit in. 
But when we set apart Christ as Lord, we experience that change on the inside that changes our life on the outside. And I pray for this congregation, for those here who know you, that you would encourage them to say, here I am, use me, and you'll get to work in a wonderful way. And for any of you this morning who don't know you, who understand the hopelessness of life without you, may some of these truths resonate, may it be what they're looking for because they know it's what we're created for, a world where we are valued, where we're significant, where there's meaning to life, where there's hope for the future, and we find all these things in Jesus. And Lord Jesus, you're reaching out today to anyone who doesn't know you, but who's willing to humble themselves and say, forgive me for the things I've done wrong. Thank you for coming into this world, Lord Jesus, 2,000 years ago, dying on a cross. You've paid for everything that ought to separate me from a holy God. Please help me to turn away to turn towards you, to experience you at work in my life, to be welcomed back into your family, to be born again a new creation, a relationship that starts today is going to last forever. Father, would you seal the things you've done in our heart and our mind and our soul today and help us to be changed, to be different, to shine brightly for you, and we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.